Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to yet another Blaney's podcast. And here we are live in the Blaney's podcast studio, and today we're actually being filmed for a Instagram video. And I have with me the pleasure of our engineer, Varjan Arman, who's not only the engineer today, but who's going to be interviewed on civil litigation in Ontario. Good afternoon, Varj. Good afternoon, Lou. Yes, thanks for having me. It's nice to sit on the other side of the microphones for a change. Okay, so today you're actually going to be doing this without your earphones on. I hope you can handle that. I think the machinery will uh, take care of it for us, I hope. Okay, so here we go. Uh, So, Varj, can you explain to the podcast listening audience what it is that you do with Blaney McMurtry? Sure. So I'm a commercial litigator, which is sort of a subdivision of civil litigation. It means that uh, I engage in either plaintiff or defense side work for generally business-related disputes in the civil court system. So I know this sounds like a kind of philosophical question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's the point of the courts in, in, in a Canadian society of ours? Right. Well, in terms of the civil courts, uh, I really view it as a, a forum for parties who cannot uh, achieve a resolution to their disputes on their own. So they need a impartial uh, third party to impose a result or a decision on them. And that would be the court? That would be the court and the trier of fact being a, a judge or a master. Okay, so then if we, are to be, if we are to look at this from a philosophical point of view, what is then the role of the lawyer? What role does he play in this court system? Right, so the, the lawyer is really the advocate of the client's case. Uh, their job is to prepare the evidence, uh, to work within the confines of the court system, to present the evidence, to try and get the client the best possible result, Uh, But as well, the lawyer also has a rather important duty to try and explore and in fact has an ethical obligation to the client to try to explore an alternative resolution and see if a settlement can be reached without the need to have the case go all the way to trial. All right, so why don't we try an example of a real-life client that walks into your boardroom and sits down and explains his case to you. Do you listen to what he says um, uncritically or critically? Uh, Critically, I want to start thinking about what challenges the client's case may have. I want to know what steps have been taken so far, and I want to know if their evidence will back up the allegations that they're saying in terms of they've been wronged or someone's claiming that they committed a wrong upon the other party and that they didn't do this alleged wrong. I want to know is there merit behind what the client is saying because that's all going to play an important factor in what kind of recommendation that we will make in terms of how the case should be settled and in terms of settlement value, if we think it should be settled at a discount or if they should be, you know, accepting a discount if they're plaintiff or they should be, uh, you know, really pushing for 100 cents on the dollar or if they're a defendant and they're in the wrong, maybe they need to pay out and we need to decide when's the most opportune time to reach a settlement. So you you take sort of an overview of the client's case when they first come in uh, try to test some of the evidentiary points and come up with some kind of initial strategy when the client first walks into the office. I presume that strategy evolves and changes over time as you get to know the case better. It certainly can. You know, uh, sometimes, and, and this is why we really try and challenge clients to give us all their important information and documents at an early stage, and sometimes you have to you know, coax things from people a little bit, but other times through no fault of their own, new documents and information that are relevant can surface later. But it's certainly true that a case that initially looks kind of weak 
might grow to be strong in time, and the opposite is also true. Right. As time wears on, a case gets less and less attractive. Certainly. So I wonder if you could explain how the court process works. So when somebody comes in, let's say a person who has been harmed or wronged or breach of contract or has been injured, what is it the first thing that you do with the courts to introduce the case? Okay, so yeah, if you're on for a plaintiff, uh, what you're talking about is initiating a civil claim. That's done with a document called a statement of claim, where basically you will set out what the wrong was, how much money you're looking for, and it doesn't have to be money, it could be some other form of relief. You could ask the court, for example, to make sure that the parties finish the contract. That's kind of a rare remedy, but that's just one example. Um, often it's just for money. And you set out in that document all of the allegations that you're making as against the defendant, the alleged uh, wrongdoer, and you get that claim issued with the court by paying a fee, and you serve it on the defendant, and now you have uh, formally started the litigation process. So the claim really is, the, is your client's story as to what happened. That's right. It's the story and the request for relief. And there has to be in this story or this pleading, the statement of claim, some recognizable legal cause of action. Can you tell us what that means? That's right. So you have to plead one of the uh, actions or, or causes of action, as you say, that's recognized by courts of law. So a very common one would be a breach of contract. Okay. Suppose I'm a contractor and I come and I do work in your, work in your home to renovate your kitchen and you don't pay me or you don't pay me in full, I will sue you for breach of contract in failing to pay me the full amount that I'm owed. Or it could be in negligence or it could be de for defamation. These are all different recognized categories of a, of a cause of action. So uh, can you tell us exactly what happens at a discovery? Right. So at the discoveries, it's really uh, your chance or your lawyer's chance to get to really understand the other side's case. And uh, there's a couple different styles or approaches to the discoveries. But generally, you're going to hear a lot of questions about the other side's position, um, asking for point-in-time clarification of, of, you know, what happened, why did you do this, who did you speak to. Uh, you can ask for further documents if you think there's more documents out there and understand what evidence they are relying upon um, to make out their case. And the reason that the discovery process is <clears throat> so important, Lou, is that at trial you get to use the transcript. There will be a written transcript uh, prepared by the court reporter at the discoveries who records the conversation. And that transcript can be used at trial. And for example, if the witness changes his or her story from what they said at discovery, now the lawyer can capitalize on that and show that there is an inconsistency and that maybe this is not a reliable witness. So when, when, when you get to the discovery stage, I guess a lawyer will evaluate the, the, the strength of the witness on the other side, will evaluate the documentary evidence that's provided to him, and at the end of which he'll have a much better idea what the strengths and weaknesses of his own case and, and chances of winning. That's exactly right. The discoveries are truly the, the time or the opportunity where you get to really have a, a more precise understanding of the case and of its strengths and of its uh, weaknesses. And so that has a, a fairly significant role in understanding the settlement value of your case. So for example, in really simple, straightforward cases, often like the breach of contract, you know, unpaid invoices type of cases, I like to explore whether a settlement is possible in advance of the discoveries so that we can avoid the, the legal cost of having to go do the discoveries. 
but sometimes that's not possible and in more complicated cases you can pretty much look at a case and know right away that this case has no chance of settling before the parties get an opportunity to go to the discoveries. Um, so often what you'll see is uh, after the discoveries have been completed then you have a good opportunity to settle the case because you've learned more about it. In your experience do you find that when lawyers enter into settlement negotiations uh, they employ different tactics, each one has a different style. How does the settlement discussion work? Certainly. Uh, there are definitely different styles. Uh, for example, the more aggressive approach is to argue the evidence, you know, argue the merits of the case, uh, write a detailed position letter. That can be very effective. Um, however, I like to kind of tailor my approach to the specific case that I'm dealing with and the, who, who the other people are on the other side. My experience is that you know, litigation and, and corporations are all made up of human actors. So it's important to try to read your audience and pick a strategy that's going to work with the evidence you have to work with, but also the people you're going to work with. Um, like any any business, it's it's a collection of people trying to work together towards a, a common goal. You may seem like you're adverse, but often the two lawyers will start trying to work together to bridge a gap or get their clients to come to a compromise on the issues. So in that regard, there is some collaboration required. So sometimes you take a more collaborative approach. You may invite the other lawyer and, and their client to a settle in-person settlement meeting, for example. Uh, or you may write a detailed position letter, or you may get into the good old-fashioned negotiation back and forth where you keep exchanging uh, different numbers and see if you can get closer and closer to a uh, agreed-upon middle ground. In the civil court system in Ontario, is there a, a time set aside to try to resolve or mediate a case? Uh, yes, there is. It depends somewhat on what city you're in. Um, in the cities of Toronto, Ottawa, and Windsor in Ontario, we have something called mandatory mediation under one of the rules of court, where it's absolutely a requirement. You must engage in a mediation session with a third party independent and neutral uh, professional mediator. Um, now, if you don't have that because you're not in one of uh, those three cities, you can still do that as long as all the parties agree to, to have a mediation. You can all consent to it and you can try that. Uh, but even if you don't, you still get one last chance for an in-person meeting, which is called a pre-trial conference. It's a requirement no matter where you are and no matter what city, you have to sit down with a judge um, that judge cannot be your trial judge, so although the pretrial conference is typically used to try and get the case ready for trial, see how many witnesses everyone has, how long they're going to need, and what the issues are, most of the judges will still try to use that session as an opportunity to at least try and see if a settlement is possible. Okay, so let's, let's go back to mediation. So can you tell us what mediation is and uh, what its purpose is? Right. Mediation has uh, its primary goal as trying to resolve the entire dispute and reach a settlement. Um, however, that's not always possible. So as a secondary goal, you may try and at least resolve some of the issues and dispute between the parties. So for example, if it's, if it's not a simple case and there's three, four, five different areas of dispute as between the two, the two sides, maybe you can resolve one or two of them and you can at least make the... Uh, the challenges at trial that have to be dealt with lesser and make the trial take less time and everyone can save a bit of money that, that through that way. But the mediation is a, a meeting where both sides get to sort of make their pitch, discuss what they want out of the process, 
um, discuss their position, and it's all done on what's called a without prejudice basis. And the mediator, uh, his or her job is to facilitate this discussion and to sometimes separate the parties when appropriate uh, to then play messenger and run settlement offers back and forth between the two rooms. But it's all without prejudice, which means it cannot be used against you at trial. If you say something at the mediation and it makes a concession, you know, yes, we admit that we did something wrong on this, this one area and we're willing to give you a little bit of money for that topic, then that can't be used against you at, tri- at trial later. So that's, that's what you mean by saying without prejudice. Right. Confidential and, and cannot be used against you later. Okay. So let's say the, the attempts at mediation fail, the, te- the attempts at negotiated settlement fail, and the pretrial does not uh, result in a, in a resolution either. So I guess then you're off to trial. That's right. And a case can still settle before trial, but you're right. In terms of the formal steps, uh, that's the last formal step in the process is to ha- actually prepare and have a trial. So tell me what goes on in the law office to to prepare a matter for trial. Right. That is the most labor-intensive section out of all of the steps we've talked about so far. You're going to have to have uh, your lawyer preparing to interview witnesses. Well, they would have already interviewed the witnesses. You're going to prepare actual questions that you'll ask the witnesses at the trial prepare to cross-examine the other side's witnesses in terms of uh, trying to get admissions from them or, uh, you know, make them look like they're not credible. And you're also going to prepare all of your uh, oral arguments to the court, and you're going to need to get your documents into good order as well. Okay, so, Varsh, we've talked about witnesses and and preparing witnesses by meeting them, interviewing, getting questions ready for them. What are the roles of an expert witness? Can you explain what that is? An expert witness is required where you have an element of the case that is so technical in nature that uh, you need an expert to give an opinion on it. So a really common one is in construction disputes where you need an engineer to explain, for example, if a roofing beam that was defective and caused the roof of a building to collapse and and the owner of the building is suing the roofing contractor, Um, You know, the judge may not be able to understand the technical details of how, of why this beam collapsed and why the roof collapsed unless you have a professional to uh, explain it. But the other benefit of having an expert witness is that they're actually, their duty, although although they're hired and paid for by the party requesting them, their duty is actually to the court. And they have a duty to be impartial and objective and give their uh, best professional opinion on the questions that are posed to them. So then I I presume at one point in time these individual witnesses have to be qualified as an expert. That's quite right. Before they get to testify and actually speak on the technical issues in the court, they are first questioned about their, uh, basically about their resume in terms of their experiences, have they given uh, testimony in court before, was the, did the court accept their evidence? And uh, once that's done, the lawyer has to do something called tendering the witness to be qualified as an expert. And only if the, cor- the court agrees uh, to qualify them as an expert, only then may they proceed to give testimony on the actual issues in that lawsuit. All right, so now you've prepared your witnesses, you've interviewed your witnesses. I presume the, you, you put your documents together as well when you're preparing for trial? Yes. Okay. You show up at trial. Tell me what, what happens at the trial in terms of the order, the procedure, and how it works. Okay. Well, you could have uh, either a judge uh, alone trial or you could have a judge plus jury trial. 
and a jury trial will be only six jurors in a civil matter in Ontario. And uh, once all of that initial uh, setup is dealt with, which is actually dealt with in advance, uh, the lawyers will make opening statements, a brief summary to the court about uh, you know, what this case involves, what they expect the evidence to be. The lawyer cannot actually argue the evidence during the introduction. Uh, so that's a high-level overview. And after that, the plaintiff's uh, lawyer will call their first witness and start with the testimony. Okay, so then the lawyer calls his witness, and uh, I presume that's, what is that called when, when the first witness is called? That's an examination-in-chief or direct examination. The lawyer has to get this witness to really tell their story, and they have to kind of tell it on their own. There's a rule about the manner of questioning that the lawyers can ask in civil court, which means uh, for their own witnesses, this examination-in-chief, they can only ask open-ended questions, such as, you know, tell me what happened next. Uh, why did you do that? The lawyer cannot actually suggest what the answer is uh, to the client so for, or the, the, to their witness. So, for example, they cannot say in a motor vehicle accident case, now the light was red when you drove through it, wasn't it, sir? That question is only proper on cross-examination. When the first lawyer has finished his or her direct examination, the other lawyer gets to do what's called a cross-examination, and that's when they get to use all the dramatic uh, putting words in your mouth type of uh, uh, lawyering that you see in the television dramas. So is the point of cross-examination uh, essentially to attack the credibility of the witness? Uh, that's one of the goals. It can be to uh, attack credibility through showing they don't have a good memory, they've made a prior statement that was inconsistent. For example, their discovery transcript says the light was yellow, and at trial they say the light was red. Now you've got an inconsistency. Uh, but it can also just be used to show factual inconsistencies as well. Okay, so then the witness for the, for the plaintiffs go first, and they're cross-examined. Do the, does the plaintiff put on all their witnesses before the defendant goes? Normally, yes, they do. They would call all their witnesses. After every witness gives their direct examination, the other lawyer does get the uh, chance for cross-examination in response. So once the plaintiff finishes with all of its witnesses, then you uh, switch to the defense side of the case, and the defense lawyer gets to call all its witnesses for direct examination, and the plaintiff lawyer has the same uh, mutual corresponding right of cross-examination for each witness. Once the witnesses are all examined before the court and cross-examined, what happens then? Well, subject to any uh, reply witnesses that may be called or any outstanding matters or questions from the judge, uh, basically at that time, uh, the lawyers switch to their closing arguments. And what, what are they? Closing arguments is where they do get to argue about the evidence. They get to summarize the evidence. Basically, what you want to do in a closing is summarize all of the evidence that you need to establish the required elements to prove your case. And uh, you want to, if you're the plaintiff lawyer, ask the court for the relief uh, it is that your client is seeking. Okay, so then once each lawyer has the opportunity to make closing argument, what is the next stage of this case? Well, at that time, the judge will make a decision. Uh, the judge may do what's called uh, taking the case under reserve. It means they're not going to give you, give you a decision on the spot. It may take them a matter of weeks or even months to think about the case, uh, particularly if it's been a long trial. If the trial's gone on for you know a week or three weeks or something, you may have to have the judge go back and review their notes, think about things, and uh, come back with a written decision. Uh, reasons for, for their decision. And of course, if you have a jury trial, the jury has to go about deliberating. And that process can 
It can be sometimes very quick. It can also take a large number of uh, many days in some circumstances. Once the judgment has been written and issued and delivered to the parties, what are the consequences of winning or losing, other than obviously winning or losing the case? Right. Well, that's an interesting question, Lou, because getting a paper judgment uh, is not the end of the story, <laughs> unfortunately. If you're a plaintiff, and suppose you're dealing with a reputable Fortune 500 company as a defendant, you get a judgment against them, they're probably going to pay on the judgment, and they're not going to make you chase them around. Before we go there, is there is there a, 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 any cost issues that arise from winning or losing a case? Uh, yes, there is. That's an important point, too, so thanks for reminding us. Uh, you're going to have the ability to recover costs if you're a successful plaintiff. The ordinary rule is that the successful party uh, is entitled to their reasonable legal costs and disbursements. Now, the costs regime in Ontario is somewhat limited. Uh, the recovery is typically limited to 50 to 60 percent of the actual reasonable legal fees incurred. Um, and if you're a defendant and you are also similarly victorious in defeating the, defend, uh, the plaintiff's claim, you're also entitled for the, to have the plaintiff pay you back some reimbursement for your legal fees expended. So let's go back to what, before I interjected with my cost question, we talked about essentially trying to enforce a judgment if the defendant doesn't willingly hand you over a check. Right. So enforcement proceedings can be somewhat frustrating if, if someone's uh, got a judgment against them and it's a deadbeat corporation with no assets or revenue stream, or if it's an individual who has been shrewd enough to put all of their assets out of their name. So, for example, the common one we see is that the family home is registered in the spouse's name as opposed to in the name of the person who's taking on risk by engaging in, in business, for example. If they're not, uh, if they're an entrepreneur, so you have a number of enforcement steps available. Uh, garnishments. If you find a bank account for this person, you can garnish their bank account, or if you find out where they're employed, you can garnish up to twenty percent of their employment wages every paycheck. Um, if they have property, you can also put what's called a writ of seizure and sale of real property, which is an encumbrance against their their home or their other property. When do you actually determine if the defendant has any money? Do you do it right at the end, in the beginning, in the middle? When, when is that determination made? In a best-case scenario, I would advise the client it's worth spending a little bit of money at the outset and, and try and do that at an early stage. Certainly, if there's any indications that the defendant might be bankrupt or insolvent or this, this person doesn't have any assets if they're in financial trouble, it's worth looking into it a little bit at the early stage rather than spending a bunch of money to get a judgment that ultimately may not have value if you can't collect on it. Okay, so now you've gone through the process of getting a judgment, trying to enforce it. Does the loser have any rights to appeal, and what are they? They sure do. Um, in Ontario, the appeal period is 30 days from the date of a final decision, like a judgment. Uh, you would appeal a decision, decision of a judge to the Ontario Court of Appeal, and uh, you have to, of course, have a, a ground of appeal, which is you can't just appeal saying, I don't like the result, I want to do this over again. You need to find a ground of appeal, which is to say the judge did something wrong. They made a, a serious um, error in, in interpreting the facts, or they made a legal error and they actually got the law wrong. And uh, one other ground of appeal is the lack of uh, sufficient reasons for, th for the decision. And that's because our courts are supposed to be an open and public process. It's supposed to be accessible and understandable. So the legal test for reasons is can a third party sort of 
uh, new set of eyes reading the decision understand the, the reasons for the court's decision in, in a given case. Okay, I'm going to give you an example, Varj, of a case that you and I were on, which may explain how cases get settled. Now, you may remember this case, and I'm not, obviously not going to mention any names, sure. in which uh, there were two partners involved in a certain business serving the public, and a good portion of their business was in cash. Yes. Do you remember this case? I, I know the case. Okay. And if the CRA had follow, found out about the, the amount of cash that had been collected and not necessarily declared, what would have been the consequence to both sides of the, of the case? In all likelihood, both sides would have stood to, lo- to lose a significant amount of money through the CRA collecting back taxes and penalties. And so if one of the parties was to come to court in a discovery and disclose all this cash that they had received in order to value their, their, uh, their piece of the pie, would that be a good way or strategic way of trying to get the case settled? It could be. I see what you're driving at is us litigators trying to think creatively and think outside of the box to try and get the best results for our clients. And as I recall, in that case, because our client was a minority shareholder in these businesses, but was trying to demonstrate the true value of the businesses, including for the cash aspects of the businesses, the other side, the partners, uh, probably stood to lose a little bit more uh, than our minority shareholder. Uh, but that was a, a leverage tactic that uh, I think served us to get the case settled more quickly. And that was a creative way of actually doing it because by telling the truth, the plaintiff would be in serious trouble with the CRA. Exactly right. And that's all our client had to do was to tell the truth. Right. And this is the way that uh, I think is a good example of how lawyers can assist the process by not going through the entire process right to the end of trial, but by thinking outside the box and using strategy and tactics in real life. That's right. And so as the case progresses, we try to keep an open mind for the best chances to capitalize on any important evidence or other opportunities that can allow us to, uh, you know, make a pressure point where we can get a good settlement done. Finally, Varj, beyond the mediation, the resolution process envisaged by the court through a pretrial or negotiation, I'm aware of something called arbitration. Can you tell me when, what that is and when that's used? Arbitration is... A similar process to mediation in that you have a neutral third party. Uh, The parties in the litigation will agree to this person, uh, a mutually agreeable third party. They're a professional uh, who sits down with them, listens to the case, listens to the evidence, reviews everything. And unlike a mediator, in terms of just trying to facilitate a resolution, the arbitrator is actually empowered to make a binding decision on the other, on the parties. So they may have a set of rules that they agree upon in advance, and we have an arbitration act in Ontario which speaks to some of that. And uh, the arbitrator will actually impose their decision. And the parties can also agree in advance to remove any rights of appeal subject to a few limited exceptions. So, so you're going to actually pay for a binding decision. You may not like it, but you're going to circumvent the court process, probably get through the, the whole process for a cheaper amount of money when you factor in the legal costs. And, and, and faster, no doubt. And, and faster, no doubt, because we, have a lot, we do face a lot of delays in the Ontario court system. And uh, arbitration, is <clears throat> excuse me, arbitration is frequently used in larger commercial disputes. You may actually see in the contract between the parties an advance agreement to participate in arbitration if any disputes do arise. Right. Okay, so 
Varj, it's clear that you have a very good and clear understanding of the litigation process. You obviously use strategy and tactics to think outside the box for the best interest of your client. So if somebody wanted to get in touch with you to have them represent them in a dispute, how would they do that? Well, I can be reached here at Blaney McMurtry, Lou, on my direct line at 416-596-2884 or by email at vrman at blaney.com. It's V-A-R-M-A-N at B-L-A-N-E-Y.com. And I'll be happy to speak with anyone who has a potential uh, case to address. Thank you, Varjan. This has been very illuminating. Thanks for having me.